Follow along with me, if you would, as we read the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. He tells his disciples, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. Um, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Some of you are hashtaggers. You know what a hashtagger is. You, in this world we live in, in social media, you have to post something, a tweet or an Instagram post or a Facebook post, and then you end it with a hashtag. What's the purpose of the hashtag? The purpose of the hashtag, really there's two purposes to hashtags. Generally speaking, the purpose of a hashtag is that, that one phrase that kind of encapsulates what it was you were saying. Hashtags are also a method of searching posts. But we all do it. Some of you do it more than others. Sometimes your hashtags are cute, and they look like this. Go ahead, Ben. You know, you tweet something out. Next one. So if you can read it, this is a tweet. My little girl is enjoying the Magic Kingdom. Hashtag princess. Right? We all get that. Maybe you post a picture of your little girl standing in front of the castle. And hashtag princess. But some of you are real hashtaggers. And it looks like this. Go ahead. 
I'm so tired of shoveling snow. Hashtag, I just wish I was on vacation in an island somewhere far away. Hashtag, my back will never be the same again. <laughs> Got to be honest, like I give up. Like when I see that hashtag, I'm like, I don't, I don't get that. Um, but everybody who is on social media hashtags at some point in time, and the hashtags meant to sort of just tie together what it was you were trying to say in your post. Now, I called this sermon title Hashtag Overcoming because Jesus goes into this long conversation about uh, the upcoming personal anguish and, and suffering and trials within their hearts that His disciples are going to feel as a result of Him dying, Him leaving for a period of time. They're not sure what to make of this. It seems confusing. It's going to be painful. They, Jesus gets all this. But the hashtag is what He says at the very end. Let me read it one more time just because it's worth reiterating. He said, I've said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All the stuff that's going to come in our life, all the things that are going to feel like trials, all the things that are going to just rend our hearts into, cause us personal anguish and struggle, that are going to cause us to feel like we need to lash out or that we need to be resentful or bitter, all those things are answered by this one last statement that Jesus makes. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Hashtag, or as Jimmy Fallon would say, hashtag overcoming. Overcoming. That's the great joy, the encouragement that we have this morning because in life there is discouragement. Yes, would we all agree with that? In life there is discouragement. Overcoming discouragement is found in Christ. So let me give you this from what Jesus says here this morning about four different things with regard to overcoming discouragement. Because this is a his disciples right now, they are on a freight train headed right towards Discouragementville and they are going to be camped out there for about three days like never before in their life. And this is how He encourages them with these four truths. First of all, He reminds them that overcoming is only possible through the resurrection. Overcoming this life and the discouragement that this life holds for us is only possible through the resurrection. There may be tricks or gimmicks. You may listen to a, a wonderful motivational speaker or somebody who is an expert in positive thinking and you may, get a, you may get a hint of encouragement for a season of your life. But rest assured, discouragement will rear its ugly head again and will come around and will try and ensnare us and render us useless. And Satan loves to use discouragement as one of his great tools to put us on a shelf so that we never do anything for the Lord. And Jesus says to His disciples, on the surface, it's going to look like you've lost. On the surface, it's going to look like death wins. On the surface, it's going to look like the world wins. I'm going to die. The world is going to rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful. But take heart. The loss experienced by the disciples could prove to be their undoing if they weren't careful. 
It's not going to make sense. But because Jesus overcomes, because Jesus rises from the grave, it gives us this great hope of encouragement that nobody can take away from us. It tells us that because He overcomes, we overcome. That there is not one single uh, anchor in your life of discouragement. There's not one single fetter or chain that binds us in discouragement that the resurrection of Christ does not throw off. It may feel like that sometimes for a day or a week or maybe a season of your life, but the first place we go for encouragement is the simple fact that the world could not discourage Christ in the mission of salvation and redemption from God and that because of that we are the recipients and the world cannot discourage us either. People are going to hurt us. People are going to harm us. The circumstances of our life are going to create pain and affliction. But this is what the resurrection tells us in Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Not only is this a temporary hope, not only is the resurrection a temporary encouragement, but the resurrection is an eternal encouragement in our life. Jesus Christ is not just going to... Positive, motivational speakers, you know what they do? They, they, they say that they can fix an individual item or a temporary affliction in your life. Do you know what Jesus Christ does? He removes it forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, the last year or two of my mom's life, she really struggled. She was in so much pain and she really struggled with being able to uh, love others well because the pain was causing her to be the kind of person that that lashed out initially, the kind of person that was having a difficult time maintaining healthy relationships because of the physical pain that was in her life. But you know what? We rejoice as a family in the fact that when we get to heaven and we are reunited again, because Jesus Christ is an eternal intercessor on her behalf, she was not judged based merely upon the discouraging and painful last two years of her life, but that we get a whole healthy mother back when we get to heaven. That she is released of any affliction that tormented her over the last couple years of her life. We don't have to worry about getting to heaven and I don't have to worry about getting that that guilt trip that always seemed to come when you sat down at the dinner table or or the constant comments that she would make about how you were disappointing or something like that, that when we get to heaven, we all rejoice and we're all made perfect and we've been alleviated of all those things. And the resurrection is our assurance of that. Now that's good, and that's the foundational element this morning. But what Jesus reminds His disciples of in the second point is this. He tells them, overcoming means your focus is on the new birth and not the birth pain. A couple generations ago, men would stand in a waiting room while a woman would deliver a child. 
And the man would proudly, you know, have his box of cheap cigars there, and, and he would be ready to announce to the world, I have a boy, I have a girl. And meanwhile, in another room, his beloved wife is screaming her lungs out, delivering a child into the world. Most men now are included in the delivery room, and they have a new appreciation, I think, for what exactly goes on there. Birth is beautiful. I learned that. Birth is miraculous. There's no doubt about that. And birth is just downright painful. I learned that. I learned that just merely by the way my wife gripped my hand every time the contractions came around. It was pronounced in the garden that birth would be extremely painful. I witnessed that moment twice, and even more miraculous than childbirth in my mind is the fact that any mother signs up to do it again and again. But that's God, isn't it? The, the fact that the, the, the pain and the anguish of that moment is forgotten because of the joy of new birth. So why does a mother sign up to do it again? Because new birth in and of itself is something far greater than any pain or affliction can steal away. And the implication here, according to Christ, is that despite the struggles of today, those struggles pale in comparison to what He's doing with regard to new birth in our lives and in the lives of other people. We can choose to focus on the pain. We can choose to focus on the struggle. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that there is pain, but that pain brings about a new birth with a joy in and of itself that nobody can take away. So as Christians, in our own personal lives, in very real ways, we're going to experience heartache. We're going to, and it may not have anything to do with your, your church family or your Christian walk, but sometimes it may. There may be somebody in the church that hurts you, and it would be easy just to write that off and say, you know what, I, I'm done with church. Or I don't want to be a part of that church anymore. But what the resurrection of Christ teaches us is that in the process of the obedience and the working out of new life and new birth and gospel ministry, there is pain and heartache. But don't focus on the pain and heartache so that, again, Satan's ploys would be for you to say, you know what, there's mean people in the church. Or there are mean people in the world. I'm done. Lost people are just awful. They're terrible people to be around. I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, to focus on that misses the purpose of new birth and the purpose of the Gospel. Because once you lead somebody, if you ever had the privilege to lead somebody into new life in Jesus Christ through evangelism, you're more motivated to go out and engage lost people. You're more motivated to endure the temporary hurts in order to see new life take place in other people's lives. Don't focus. In, in our lives, you know, we want to just quit because life is hard and it hurts. Don't. Because God's got a plan and purpose for your life that centers around the resurrection. It doesn't center around death and suffering. And then Jesus tells him in point three, He tells him this, overcoming means your focus is on all 
that is available through Christ. Sometimes, as American Christians anyway, we get so accustomed into planning and intentionality and strategy and and we forget that we serve a God who holds all the answers. We think we can budget a church into success. We think that we can orchestrate our lives and manage our lives to a point where we can account for everything, where we can, we can work our way into success. And what we miss out is on the great joy that it's actually God who grants all those things. And instead of spinning our wheels and working so hard all the time, sometimes it's better to just focus on the fact that God's got this. He's got this. And, and the reason He has this is because everything is available to us through Him. Let me read it just again. It won't be on the screen, but just as a reminder, the words that Jesus says. In verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of Me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And I think He goes on and He, he reiterates that a little bit later as well. There's a, a couple truly amazing things to note here. The disciples would be focused on losing something when Jesus died. Rightfully so, I get it. I mean, if I was there in that point in time, I probably would have the same focus. Their focus is on what they were losing. We are losing the potential Messiah. We are losing our rabbi. We're losing our livelihood. We gave up everything to follow this man. The list would go on and on. Their focus was on what they're losing. Jesus knew it. But Jesus also knew that they were gaining much, much more because He was going. The resurrection of Jesus grants us a couple things, according to him. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus grants us direct access to the Father. If you have a pen, I want you to write that down. The resurrection of Jesus grants us direct access to the Father. Jesus says, quote, In that day you will ask nothing of me. That sounds like terrible news, doesn't it? I'm going to die and you're not going to ask me for anything. What he's really saying is, I'm going to die. You don't have to ask anything of me anymore. All these questions, all the things you're unsure of, all the requests that you have, you've been coming to me to try and understand these things. I'm telling you that when I die and when I rise again, you are no longer going to have to ask me these things anymore. Why? Because now they have direct access to the Father. No longer will the questions be to the physical Jesus, but now access in prayer to the eternal Father. Look what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4. What a great, encouraging passage of Scripture. Really just a, a victory chant in Hebrews chapter 4. He says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
It's almost like God is in heaven and He is, because of what Christ did in His death and His resurrection, our Heavenly Father is in heaven. He's just going, come, please. Why are you carrying this? Why are you struggling with this? Why are you making this an issue? Would you please just come? Why are you spinning your wheels in your own efforts before you come to me? Come to me first. Trust in me first. I'm available to you. Don't reject me, but come to me. Boldly go, it says. Boldly go. When I read the word bold or boldly, I envision an action that involves courage and effort and confidence. We go to our Heavenly Father with such mannerisms. Let us not take this privilege for granted. Let us not take the hope and joy that can come from it for granted. For comparison's sake, what I did was, I wanted to look at an Old Testament passage of someone who was wrestling with this. They desperately wished they had this access to the Father. Compare the joy of the writer of Hebrews with the words of Job when speaking of his relationship with God. In Job chapter 9, we take for granted, okay, mind you, let me set the stage one more time. We have full access to go to the Heavenly Father, ask Him anything that we want, expect of Him to fulfill His will through us. We can go boldly knowing that nothing that we say or ask is going to change His opinion of us, that it's not God's desire to crush us or to torment us even more. That's the confidence that we have now because of Christ. These are Job's words in Job chapter 9. In speaking of God, he said, How then can I answer Him, choosing my words with Him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer Him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned Him and He answered me, I would not believe that He was listening to my voice. Stop there. What a horrible existence. Could you imagine summoning the Father and not even knowing if He cared to listen to you? Verse 17, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my words without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You see what's going on here. He feels like no matter what He does, He has no relationship with the Father. There's no access. There's no care. There's no concern. There's no right standing. Even if He says to God, I'm blameless, He knows in His heart that He's not and that God must judge him. And yet here we are. Hopefully we know that we're not blameless either. And yet God says to us, come boldly. Why? Because Christ left. Christ died. He was resurrected. He went to the Father. 
And now He stands there at the throne interceding in our behalf so that our Heavenly Father is just saying like this, please come. Talk to me. Be near me. Yet we choose to live in our affliction. We choose to dwell on that which is negative and the Father is telling us, come and ask. From Hebrews, we're reminded that it was Christ that made us blameless to give us access and hope and joy. So we must take joy in our lives knowing that God is listening and delights in it. Let me say that again. We, we, we sometimes think the first part, but we forget the second part. God is listening and He delights in it. He delights to hear you no matter what you're going through. So I said there were two things that overcoming makes available through Christ. First is direct access to the Father. And I want you to write this down too. Christ's resurrection also grants us answered prayer in Christ's name. Guaranteed answered prayer in Christ's name. There's not many things we can say are guaranteed in life, but I'm telling you this. If you ask something of the Father, it is guaranteed in the name of Jesus Christ. Now before you think I'm going all prosperity gospel on you, let me explain this. This is the th- and how do I know this is important to Jesus' heart? This is the third time in three chapters Jesus has made this exact same saying. In John 14, He said this, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. And then in John 15, verse 16, He said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He will give it to you. And then He said it again in chapter 16. We should be getting the impression that God wants us to ask Him for things in His name so that He can fulfill the desires, the requests. And all this is possible according to Christ because He left, because He died on the cross, and because He rose again, and He stands at the Father's side to intercede on our behalf. Whatever we ask in His name, the Father will, guaranteed it, boom, do it. Now here comes the correcting of bad theology and the instituting of good theology. Our tendency is, because this is one of the greatest and most misunderstood concepts in the entire New Testament. Jesus is not saying, ask the Father for a spouse and the spouse will come. Ask the Father for a BMW and the BMW will come. That's not what he's saying. Our tendency is to focus on the, quote, whatever we ask part, And we seem to forget the quote, in my name part. Jesus Christ cannot grant you anything that is not in His name. And here's what that means. It means that your prayer request is tied to the work of Christ. When you ask something, it is tied to the work of Jesus Christ. It's tied to His blood. It's tied to His perfection. It's tied to His righteousness. And it's tied to His standing before the Father. If you ask something in Christ's name, it is in keeping with His blood, His sacrifice, His righteousness, and His standing before the Father. So if you ask something in Jesus' name and you say to yourself, 
Where is it? I think it's a safe bet to say that it's not in accordance with who Christ is. It, we ask for things sometimes that are sinful, and we may not even know it. We ask for things um, that are not in keeping with Christ in you. It may be a personal request. But answered prayers start with personal redemption. This is a, a big concept. So let me kind of simplify it with a a dogmatic sort of offensive statement. God does not answer prayers unless they are in Christ's name. If the answered prayer is tied to the righteousness of Christ, there are a lot of people in the world that say, oh, I'm praying for you, but they're not in Christ." For a prayer to be answered, it must be solicited in the name of Christ. A person must be in Christ. God, here comes the really difficult theological concept, God does not hear those prayers that are not solicited in the name of Christ. If somebody is willfully sinning and disobedient and rejecting the salvation of Jesus Christ, and they turn around and they want to pray to their heavenly, or the heavenly Father, not their heavenly Father, they want to pray to the Father for something, why should God honor that? There's two kinds of grace that God solicits, or God allows, not solicits, that God allows. God pours out general grace, and then God pours out unique grace. General grace is a simple fact that you could reject, you could be an atheist and reject Jesus Christ every day of your life, and you're going to have food in your refrigerator every day of your life. That you, you may never be diagnosed with cancer your whole life and continue to reject Jesus. That's God's grace. General grace. The fact that the sun comes up and warms your skin. That there's water in, in your uh, faucet in your home. That's God's general grace. The Bible tells us that that it rains on... God allows it to rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. So there are going to be things that occur in our life that God just allows because of His general grace. But God's unique or special grace is reserved for those who are in Him. Those who are believers in Him. So... It means that your prayer request is tied to the work of Christ, but it also means your prayer request is tied to the will of Christ. See, Jesus can't do or allow for something that is against the will of the Father. God is sovereign, and the Son is equal with the Father, and their will does not conflict, but it's united, it's unified, it's locked tight. Your request is in accordance with God's will and the desired best of your life from Him according to His kingdom. And I think as believers mature, they understand this concept a little bit more. They become more confident in their prayer life as they pray. They pray according to the Lord's will and they understand that they, what they want to see happen in their life, they only want to see it happen if it's of God. They don't want things to happen in their life if it's not of God. 
to the point where you will even see mature Christians say, Lord, if it's of your will, remove this disease from me. But if it's not of your will and you have a purpose in it, then let it be. I mean, that is that's a whole level of, of understanding God and appreciating Him and being mature in Him that a lot of people will never even get to. Your request is in accordance with God's will and the desired best for your life in His kingdom. What Jesus said here isn't radical. I mean, he, when He taught His disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, remember these two lines? Verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 6, He told them, He said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, and there it is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, when he, when his disciples said, teach us how to pray, and Jesus gave them this outline, this template for what prayer should look like in our life, one of the very first things he taught them was, when you pray, pray that God's will be done. Not your will be done. And we're going to fast forward in a couple of weeks and we'll see Jesus We'll be talking about Jesus in the garden when He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and He prayed and He was in such personal anguish and bitterness and, and he was, His soul was vexed and yet He had the ability within Him to say, not take this cup from Me, but yet not My will, but Your will be done. As maturing believers, we come to the point where we understand Jesus Christ died on our behalf. He was resurrected again. And through that, we have the opportunity to participate in prayer with the Heavenly Father to see God's will done. Last point this morning is this. Overcoming means identifying your true source of peace. Jesus ends this conversation right before He begins in John 17 is high priestly prayer. We're going to spend a couple weeks on that. Um, not next week, but starting the week after that. We're going to spend, I think, two weeks on John 17 because there's so much there. But... He tells them that these words were spoken so that they may have peace in Him. We search for peace in a lot of different places, do we not? We search for peace in circumstances. We search for peace in relationships. We search for peace in how other people feel about us or how other people view us. We search for peace in um, money. Uh, you name it. True peace, really, ultimately, according to Christ, is only found in Him. It's found in Him. I was just reading a book this week. I uh, finished a book on the airplane the other day, and it's called Dangerous Calling by uh, Paul Tripp. And, um, and it was a, a, it's basically like a really scary warning book to pastors. And one of the last things he reiterated in the book was this. One of the greatest dangers pastors face is trying to find in horizontal relationships what they've already secured in their vertical relationship. You will disqualify yourself as a pastor the moment you start demanding or expecting or uh, operating based upon solely what you are getting horizontally through relationships with other people and not 
remembering anymore that you have been granted all these things already through your vertical relationship with your Heavenly Father. You seek, we, all of us in this room at times, if we're not careful, we seek peace in our life based upon the horizontal circumstances that we live in, don't we? If I could just get that job, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just have that person's approval, or if I could just... Pastors do it too, you know, if I could just graduate to this size church or that size church, or if my pulpit would be just this big. I've always wondered like, what the deal is with the live streaming of church services. I thought church was meant to be a local community of people who did life together through real one-on-one relationships. And now there's this growing thing where every church wants to live stream their service across the Internet. I had a company call me up. Well, I've had many companies call me up and say, hey, you want to live stream your service? And I'm like, hey, you know, I have 80 people in worship and we want to grow our church. Why would I live stream something so that more people have an excuse not to come and form relationships? But part of it, I think, has to do with pastors themselves, this desire to just be more and be seen as more. And that's a danger because they're seeking peace in things that aren't vertical. They're seeking peace in something other than what they've secured themselves personally. Pastors are sinners. They need forgiveness. They need comfort. And they need assurance in something that can only come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As is true with all of you. We're spinning our wheels if we're looking for assurance and rescue and hope in anything other than the peace that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. True peace is found only in Him. Consider Paul's famous words, in Philippians 4. One of the first verses I ever took the time to memorize. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you feel like your peace is being stolen, if you feel like your peace is crumbling, here are some things we can check. First, Are we rejoicing in the Lord and not in things? Are you finding greater joy in stuff or in people than in Him? Because Paul says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't catch it again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice. But don't be anxious, he says. Are you replacing your anxiousness with prayer? Are you replacing your anxiousness with something else? A lot of times we get anxious about something and our default, our knee-jerk is, well, I'm going to fix it. Self-help, fix it. Find a dummy's book at Barnes & Noble and I'm going to solve this problem right now. And Paul says, be anxious for nothing but pray. And he says, but when you pray, how about when you pray, why don't you start with this? Pray with thanksgiving. Yeah, you may think your life is terrible. Yeah, you may think your afflictions just quite honestly stink. Yeah, you may think that you're falling apart. You're anxious. So pray. But when you pray, instead of just dropping that big wish list, Christmas Santa junk on God's lap, why don't you start by being thankful? And then he says, 
be assured that God's peace guards your hearts. See, because the world is constantly seeking the affections of our hearts, isn't it? There's always somebody or something that wants to steal your joy. There's always someone or something that wants to be more important than Christ. When you find yourself trembling and you think that your your life is unsure and the afflictions are just pouring over you like massive waves in the ocean and you can't catch your breath, remember this. God's peace guards you against anything that can try and steal hope from you. And then he says, and do all this in Christ. I don't understand how people manage life without Christ. I really don't. I mean, like, I, I know I'm supposed to say that, but it's, it's the truth. I've seen people walk through loss. I've seen people try and grieve. I've seen people walk through terminal illness uh, diagnoses. And I've seen people walk through um, jobs that they hate. And I don't understand how they get, get up and put one step in front of the other without Christ without eternal hope, without the resurrection, without the promise of overcoming. We win. I'd encourage you today, right now, I'll give you permission even now before we pray if you want. If you're a social media person, I want you to send out a tweet or a Facebook post or maybe a picture of your smiling face in an Instagram post. This is what I want you to tweet today. You get a new hashtag today. Go ahead, Ben. It says, I am hashtag overcoming. And then I want you to put John 16.33. John 16.33. One more time it says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're telling the world, I'm overcoming. I'm winning. Let that be our hashtag today as Christians. I'm overcoming because Christ overcame. I win. I love it. I love it. If you're here today, you say to yourself, I, this all sounds great. Or this is news to me. I've never heard this before. Look, this is the whole reason Jesus Christ died, Christ died on the cross. Job said, no matter how good I am, I'm still full of blame. I'm still unrighteous. He still afflicts me. What does that mean? God judges sin. Jesus Christ came along, the perfect Lamb of God. He died on the cross so that no longer do we have to live with the shame and the guilt and the affliction and wrath of God resting upon our shoulders because Christ took it upon His shoulders. He died on the cross so that we could overcome. And then on the third day, He rose again so that our hope would not be temporary, but our hope is eternal. If you've not accepted that truth, today's the day you can do that. In your heart, we're going to pray in a second. I want you to just cry out to God. Say, I, I, Lord, I feel afflicted. Lord, I understand that I'm a sinner. Lord, I need forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died to take that from me. Will you please receive me as a child? And God's good to His Word. He will. He will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
There's so 